Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. This is the word of the Lord. Years ago, when I worked with the police department, the radio crackled to life and told us there had been a shooting. So we went out to the site of the shooting and found that a man had a bullet in his lower leg. The shooting was self-inflicted, but not intentional. He was suffering car trouble and came to realize, quite rightly, that The problem was in his fuse box. There was a fuse that had gone bad, and he didn't have a fuse, but he remembered he was uh, carrying in his pocket some 38 shells. And he thought, you know, those are made of metal, and metal conducts electricity, so I bet if I put that in my fuse box in just the right way, I'll get my car started again. That did not happen. What did happen was the bullet went off and lodged in his lower leg, and we showed up to deal with his problem. But it's an interesting story in that he had a tool that was perfectly fine and good. A 38 shell does what it's supposed to do. And he had no clue exactly how to use that tool. He used it very badly, and he ended up hurting himself with something that is actually very good. In our passage today, uh, Paul indicates effectively that those who have come into the churches of Galatia and are bringing this uh, hybrid doctrine, this doctrine of faith, yes, but faith plus works will uh, get God's favor, Paul seems to indicate that they're very much like the man who shot himself in the leg. They have something in their hand that is actually holy, righteous, and good, 
Paul uses that language for the moral law in the book of Romans. They have the law of God in their hands, but they don't have any idea how to actually use it. This is not the only place where Paul uses that kind of language, and in this place he only mentions it and goes on, but when writing to his disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy, in writing about these same kind of people, uh, Paul belabors the point a little bit more, and in 1 Timothy verse 3 through 8 of chapter 1, we read this. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is by faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So Paul writes very clearly and says, these men come to you with Scripture in hand, specifically the, the moral law that, that they, they find contained in the Old Testament, something holy, righteous, and good, they want to teach that scripture, but they don't really have any understanding of what it's doing. They don't have any understanding of how to actually use it. And then he goes on and says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And it's kind of a play on words because the concept of lawful uh, the, the term means the way things are supposed to work. Um, they don't really know how it works, and so they are bringing God's law to bear in a false way, and it's not doing what they think it's doing. In fact, it's causing harm. Here in our passage, at the very beginning, um, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? It would seem they don't. It would seem that uh, for all their familiarity with it, they have missed the point. It is the classic idea of not being able to see the forest because the trees are in your way. So Paul begins to show us what the law is really designed to do. And here, now he's been doing that all the way up to here, and we have been walking through Galatians for quite some time. But here, Paul says that the law is all about the two covenants. You'll notice in the language, that is how Paul speaks. Um, in verse 24, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants covenants. It is not, let us choose some covenants and compare them. It is not that there are many covenants that God has made, but we are taking two to work with. But the word the indicates God relates to men in only two ways. There is the first covenant, there is the second covenant, and Paul says the law of God is designed to talk about these two covenants. Now, stop and think about that for a second. 
if the law is designed to talk about the two covenants, that means the law itself is designed to talk about the second covenant just as much as the first, which is a very important concept. But before I go on, I need to be fair. If you are reading out of a New International Version or if you're reading out of a ESV or something to that effect, the, the emphasis I just made that Paul says these are the two covenants, you will not see the word the in the translation that you are reading. And the reason for that is because there is a textual issue there uh, coming down from antiquity to us, there are many manuscripts that have the word thee there. There are also many that don't. And the purpose of a sermon is not necessarily to work out textual variants in a technical way, but I will confess that my point is a little weaker if the word thee isn't there. Um, Paul would then be saying, now these things are two covenants. It would leave open the idea that there could be other covenants, but we are working with these covenants Um, And even if the word the is present in the text, Paul could be saying, now I have been talking about two covenants up to this point, and and you know he has been because I've been talking about that, and he has used covenant language. He has talked about baptism, and he has contrasted that with circumcision. And in a, a culture that lived and breathed the concept of covenant, the original readers would have understood when he talked about signs of the covenant, he's talking about a covenant. So he could be saying, now these things are the covenants I've been talking about, which would again leave up the idea of other covenants. But if you look at Galatians as a whole and you look at what has been set up to this point and then you look at this passage, the most natural way to understand what Paul has just said is that with God, relating to God, there are two ways to do that, two covenants. The Old Testament moral law written by Moses is really designed to teach us about those two covenants. And those two covenants are very different, and you can contrast them. They are are different as night and day in some ways. And then in other ways, they're connected, as we've already seen. We've seen that Jesus Christ kept the first covenant for us, and he substitutes his righteousness in the first covenant, that's why we can go to heaven. But in the way of relating to God, and the Christian religion is about relating to God, you may say that's a no-brainer, but the world over, you might be surprised to learn that the majority of religious people are not trying to do that. If you look at huge world religions like Hinduism or Buddhism or Taoism, uh, their adherents don't really acknowledge God. They might acknowledge that there are gods, little g, but their religion is not about it. Their religion is about uh, trying to perfect themselves. It's about trying to become the best you you can be, and they're not really in covenant with God at all in their minds. But you and I know that there is a creator of the world. We know that that creator created us and that he has entered into covenant with us. And so for you and I, we know that religion really is relating to God, and that relation is covenantal, 
And there are two ways you can relate to God, a first covenant and a second covenant. And in living those out, it's different as night and day. And Paul asks the hypothetical question, how are they different? And his answer is, let's look at a man who attempted to relate to God in both ways at different times. Let's look at Abram, later Abraham. How did Abram relate to God? Well, Abram received from God promises. They all were of one. All the promises that God gave Abram were all basically a single promise. And that promise was, I will make you a father of many nations. You will be uh, the father of my visible people. I will create out of you a visible assembly of God that worship me. I will do that. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. But that belief was not what you would call unwavering. Abraham was promised, you will be the father of many nations. There will come from you more descendants than sand on the seashore. You will have a gigantic house, a, a, a family which will be a nation, and will bless all the nations. And... Abraham, try though he might, couldn't sire a child. And time moved on. If you go to the book of Galatians, if you go to the book of Genesis and you follow Abraham's life, uh, God gives us character sketches of his life and moves through history, and whole decades roll by, and this promise from God that he would be the father of many nations seems from the eye of flesh to become dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Abraham is married. He should have a child if that's going to happen, but it doesn't happen. And it begins to look like the promise of God is going to be impossible. Now, understand what's happening here. It is not that Abraham has become too old. If you read Genesis, you're going to find out that after Sarah dies, Abraham marries another woman, and he has three children with her, and he dies at the age of 175. Abraham lives at a time where human life expectancies are going down, but they're a lot higher than ours. So the fact that he's 100 is not the problem. The fact is that he's been married for decade after decade after decade, and no child has come. That's the problem. And so Abraham thinks about, how will I receive the promise of God? God has made a promise. How will I receive it? Well, it seems like I'm going to have to really contribute my end of the bargain to make this happen. God has made me a promise. He wants me to be a father of many nations. I'm in my 90s, uh, well, 80s in this case. What should I do so that God's promise to me will be fulfilled? Well, Abraham's wife has a wonderful idea. God, well, he helps those who help themselves, right? I mean, that's what 
the flesh assumes. And Sarah thinks to herself, well, you could have a child with my maidservant, Hagar. It's not technically culturally illegal. Now, biblically, it's very, very murky and not really biblical. If you look at the moral law of God, having more than one wife and bearing children from more than one wife, there is not any point in history where the word of God says, God says that's fine. Now, there are biblical passages that talk about men who have done it, because God worked through men who have done it, but God works through sinners of every stripe. There is no biblical law that says that's fine. But culturally, it's okay. And Sarah thinks, well, by, by our own efforts, we will help God keep his promise. I will give to my husband my maidservant, and he, he will give us a child through that. And God's providence does give them a child. But it's not the child of promise. And God, again, if you go to Genesis and you look at a number of passages, God makes that very clear. God makes very clear you have had Ishmael, but that's not my promise. And what happens instead is this uh, merger of man and God, God theoretically being told to do his half and man doing his half, leads to the suffering of every person involved. Sarah envies Hagar. Hagar mocks Sarah. Ishmael is born. Now, who is Ishmael? Anybody remember? He's the father of the Arabs. And he is told by prophecy, your descendants are going to be like a wild kicking mule. They're going to kick everybody around them and stir everything up. That's in Genesis. How accurate does that seem? Seems pretty accurate. So, Abraham's attempt to put in his 50% with God's 50%, to, to receive God's promise because he has contributed leads to an absolute disaster, and God doesn't honor it. God says the fruit of what you have done is not my promise. Now again, to be fair, there's more to the story, and God is gracious to Ishmael, he is gracious to Hagar, But he is very, very clear, my covenant with the world through you, through my promise, is not fulfilled in what you've done. Rather, it will be fulfilled in my promise. Not what you do in my promise. It will be fulfilled in my promise. I have made a promise. I will keep the promise. The generative power is going to come from me and not you. And so there is another child that becomes the focus of Genesis. That child is the answer to God's promise. And when Isaac is born, God makes it very clear 
you were not the generative power. You, uh, Isaac wasn't born as a virgin birth, but God has made it very clear you did not generate this of your own power. I opened Sarah's womb at the time of my choosing. I made a promise to you, and when I chose to keep it, I kept it. And a, pro- a child from you, from Sarah, as I described in my promise, it has come true when you're a hundred years old, and it has been very clear that by your flesh, you can't make it happen, I made it happen. The fruit of the first covenant, according to the passage that I read, it was the fruit of the flesh. And how positive is the term flesh in the New Testament? Do do the apostles write about the flesh and talk about it as a good thing? Or do the apostles use the term sarks, the flesh, and it's negative? Well, if anyone has read the book of Romans, you know Paul's word for the corruption of humanity is the flesh. And here, Paul says, there was a child born of the flesh. That wasn't a good thing. This child was born as a result of slavery. And Paul emphasizes that. Hagar was in slavery. Abram was effectively in slavery to his wife, Sarah. Everything about the child of the first covenant was about slavery. And Hagar remains a slave through the entire thing. And slavery is also not a positive thing in Scripture. But the child which was the promise wasn't about slavery at all. It was about freedom. It was about God's freedom to do anything he wanted, as he wanted, but keeping his promise because God is the not-lying God as the book of Titus begins. God made a promise. God does not lie. He just doesn't. If God makes a promise to you, the promise is going to happen. It happened, and it happened in God's way both providentially and morally. When the flesh begins to, quote, cooperate with God, it is amazing, but the flesh almost always goes into the darkness. The flesh does not walk righteously. The flesh is drawn to sinfulness. And Sarah's plot was not in accordance with God's moral law. But God's moral law is all about husbands and wives having children, And when God acted, everything about what happened was righteous. Because God is totally righteous. And when God does something, there's no murkiness, there's no question. God is righteous, and this was righteous. And yet there was suffering involved again. If you look at verse... uh, 9 of Genesis chapter 21, 
Right upon the birth of Isaac, we are taken back to Ishmael, and this is what we read. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Now, that's just a brief little verse, and you might not understand its implications, but scoffing biblically is a terrible thing. He who sits in the seat of the scoffer is hostile, he is uh, persecuting, he is not a man of faith, he is a man who is a power unto himself. Scoffing, biblically, is a very bad thing. And Abram had had a child by the flesh, now he has a child by the promise. And the effect is the child of the flesh naturally despises the child of the promise. The moment he's born, Ishmael looks at that little baby and says, nope, I absolutely hate that. And we kind of understand why. Because that baby is going to inherit and Ishmael is not. And so there is immediate hostility, it grows out of his spirit, and the end result is that God makes a separation between the child of the flesh and the child of the promise. Paul quotes that same chapter, Genesis 21, when he writes about what the scripture says in verse 30, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So because of a religion of the flesh, there is now hostility because of religion of faith, religion of trusting the promise, there is immediate conflict, and God separates the fruit of the flesh, the fruit of you do your part while God does his, from God made a promise and God will keep it, God separates them forever. The promised child is Isaac. Isaac is the promised child because of the promise, not because of anything Abraham did. It was because of the promise. And Ishmael is separated from the promise. He does not receive the covenant blessings that God is going to bless the world through Abraham. He does not receive that. Again, God is gracious, and he gives certain promises to Ishmael later, but the promise through Abraham comes through Isaac, the child of faith, and those of the flesh hate those of faith. Paul says, do you want to know what relating to God is like in the two covenants? If you relate to God in the first covenant, you relate to him by your flesh, and that means by your works. You are in covenant with him, and God says to you, uh, be perfect, as I am perfect. And you say, sure, you've given me the word, you've given me certain gifts, I'll do the rest, and I'll relate to you. Abraham was probably one of the most moral guys around. If anyone could have pulled it off, it would have been Abraham. And the scripture is specifically designed to show us Abraham, the basically very good guy, 
blows it terribly. And how could it not be? Humanity is fallen. Humanity is sinful. You can relate to God in the first covenant, and that is what you are doing if you add, you know, these are my works, and this is what God has promised, and we'll put them together, and that's religion. Or you can relate to God like Abraham did concerning Isaac, which is, I will believe God when he makes a promise. There is nothing in my flesh that is good. There is nothing in my ability to live up to God's goodness. But I'm going to trust God. I'm going to have faith in God. That's the second covenant. That's like Abraham with Isaac. And that is what the law teaches. Paul has taken us to Genesis, the law of God, the writings of Moses, and has shown us that these are really the only two ways you can relate to God. One man has done it, and this is your choice. And those who choose one or the other ways will be at odds, which is ironic, because those coming into the churches in Galatia, why were they wanting them to uh, focus on the law of God, to, to embrace the law of Moses, it was to tie the Christian church to the now-forming body of what is now called Judaism so the Romans wouldn't persecute them. If the Christians were Jewish, well, the law protected them, but if the Christians were a brand-new religion in the eyes of the Romans, they get persecuted. So those coming in are basically saying, uh, embrace the world and you'll be at peace. And Paul is kind of agreeing with them. He is saying, if you are trusting the promises of God, you are not trusting your own righteousness, these false teachers are telling at least one truth. The world will hate you. And the people they want to tie you to will hate you more than anybody else. I, I, I do not want to be seen as, as saying, you know, you should hate Jewish people or Jewish people are, are intrinsically bad in, uh, you know, one-to-one -one relations or anything like that. But if you have ever read the Talmud, the Talmud is absolutely filled with invective, cursing, blasphemy, and, uh, and cussing. And it's all directed at Jesus of Nazareth. There is not one writing in the Jewish Talmud that speaks good of Jesus at all. Not one. The modern-day religion of Judaism is literally Antichrist. But those who are coming into the Church of Galatia, telling them to be more Jewish, to depend upon their works, uh, they think that they will buy the Church freedom and, and, and liberty and peace and in the eyes of the world, it will. The world understands the first covenant, kind of. The world relates to God saying, I will pull myself up by my bootstraps. I will live by my good works. I will justify myself to everyone around. The world understands that. But the world does not understand trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, the world does not understand those who lay hold of God and say, you are my total righteousness, you are my total peace. And the world will intrinsically hate it because the spirit of the world is the spirit of Ishmael. 
So Paul says they're right about that. But you will have peace with God. You will dwell with God if you trust in him alone through Jesus Christ alone. Because after Paul has talked about how the law uh, talks about these two covenants and he shows the two covenants in Abram, he then moves on to the city of Jerusalem. If you are in a covenant with a greater, you are in a covenant with a king. He is the greater, you're the lesser, you're his subject. But if you are in covenant with the king, you get to live in his city, you get to live in his land, you get to be his person. So Paul moves to Jerusalem and he says, those who relate to God by the first covenant the only Jerusalem they're ever going to know is on earth. The first covenant uh, equates to the Jerusalem that sticks and bricks, and it's right here on earth, and people call it the holy city, but objectively, how holy has Jerusalem been through history? Go back into the Old Testament. How holy was Jerusalem? The prophet Zephaniah says, God is in her midst, he does no wrong, but when the morning light comes, her kings rise up and do wickedness, her prophets prophesy a lie, her priests uh, perform their ministry for a price, wickedness is in its streets. That's kind of been the way of the Jerusalem on earth ever since there was a physical Jerusalem on earth. The holiest thing that the flesh can build is not holy. And even to this day, how peaceful and how godly is the Jerusalem that is. As one wag put it, referring to one particular sin, he said, uh, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of the world of the uh, alphabet soup people, but I do know that if they had a capital, it would be Tel Aviv. That's just a city over, and it's in Israel. Paul says, you don't want what the flesh produces. The Jerusalem that is, is in slavery. It's really in slavery to sin. It will never live up to God's law, which it will try to live up to, but it won't. But you who relate to God by promise, you who relate to God by faith alone, you have a Jerusalem too, and that Jerusalem is above, a heavenly Jerusalem. And Paul is not the only New Testament writer to talk about this. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, the writer there talks about those who had faith in God in the Old Testament. The, the, the second covenant does not begin in Matthew 1. It begins in Genesis 3. And the writer in Hebrews 11 is running us through person after person who has had faith in God through the promise. And when we get to uh, verse 13 through 16, we read this. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. So they were going to get them. The promises were going to come by faith embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. 
For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then as the chapter comes to an end, Paul returns to that theme in the last few verses. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, not works, but faith, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, now everybody had faith in God's promise, enters in, but they enter in with us. They enter in on this side of the cross, this side of the open tomb, and it's all by faith, and it's the Jerusalem that is above, as Paul describes in our passage. It's true that Jesus Christ will one day overtly rule all creation at his second coming. We can sing, this is my father's world, and legally it's true. But at this moment, it is more true that we should be singing, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me to heaven's open door, and I can't be at home in this world anymore. That's Paul's point. There are two ways to relate to God. One covenant is of the flesh. The flesh will stay on this earth. The flesh is of this earth. The flesh will not bring you into fellowship with God. The other way is by faith. It is by the promise alone. It is by God acting. And if that's how you relate to God then your city is a heavenly city. Your country is not here. You are strangers and pilgrims, to use the words of the writer of Hebrews. But that's your choices. And if anyone comes to you and says, let's help God keep his promise, they are first covenant, and that will not take you to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, make no mistake, there were works that God used in the life of Abraham. Uh, Abraham had to raise Isaac, and like I said, he wasn't a virgin birth. But it was very, very clear that the works Abraham did were not the generative power. He was not trusting in them. Uh, He could not trust in them. God was his trust and God alone. But that is the essence of the second covenant. God promises, and we believe, by his grace. And that is what the entirety of the Old Testament teaches those who have eyes of faith.